I'll read this, our scripture together. Matthew 22, verse 41. Matthew 22, 41. You want to stand with me, please? And I'll follow along as I read. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. You want to pray with me, please? Father, as we come into this time of year again, such an amazing time for us to reflect and remember on your amazing grace and your amazing wisdom that put together such an amazing plan of redemption. Father, I pray that this morning you would open our eyes, open our hearts afresh to just the amazement of it all. Uh, in a way that it changes our hearts afresh, encourages our hearts, and just draws out our love in a new way to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Our world is always looking for some kind of a deliverer, isn't it? That's what we especially like every four years as we um, endure the individuals running for president. I mean, as we look forward to the individuals running for president, as they battle each other and belittle each other, and uh, it's an amazing thing every four years. Um, all these different individuals, men and women, in a sense, trying to offer themselves to us as our deliverer. As someone who has the answers to the economy, has the answers to foreign affairs, has the answers to what we need. What is, what is really amazing to me is how many of us actually think that one of them could be our deliverer. And how many 
of us get so wrapped up in uh, who these people are. And I, I'm not diminishing the fact that we should be involved in the, the political process and we should vote, and we should. But to me, it's almost a depressing situation every four years as once again we have individuals offering themselves to us and, and every election becomes a little bit more negative, becomes a little bit more because, because they don't, most of them have very little to offer to us and what they have to offer is trying to cut down the other ones. None of them are going to be our deliverers. Hope, to, hope that doesn't burst your bubble. But whoever becomes president, our next president, if it's our current president or a new president, they aren't going to be our deliverer. But we're always looking, you know, I've heard suggestions, you know, if Bill Gates would just, I mean, look how much money he has. <laughs> if he gave all of his money, I mean, the world's problems would be taken care of, wouldn't they? Well, maybe throw in Warren Buffett or... Steve Jobs' inheritance. We're looking for a deliverer. I know one of the um, things that I've struggled with throughout my life is as we all struggle with finances and probably more of us, more of the time now, as our economic times are challenging, one of the things that have tripped me up over the years is, you know, quick, you know, get-rich-quick schemes? Any of you ever fall for those things on the internet? Or <laughs> I mean, it's, it just looks, it looks too good to be true, because it is. <laughs> I mean, all these people who made so much money in just a few minutes, you know, or a few days, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's the answer to my life's problems. And so I confess, I've fallen for a few of them because they seemed amazing. And... Finally, I figured out that they are too amazing. <laughs> and uh, the way to get quick, ri get rich quick is to be one of those people that's trying to get people to buy your book <laughs> or your video because that's how they're getting rich um, by suckers like me that uh, think it'll work. And so we have get rich quick schemes. We have, you know, lose 100 pounds in 10 minutes diet plans. We have how-to books. That, was the, that, that wasn't real. I don't think I've seen any of that that fast. But um, We have how-to books by the bazillions on how to do this, how to do that. The latest gimmick, one of the, I've never, we don't, we don't have a functional TV in our home. Um, that gets, you know, channels like Channel 4, Channel 196, or whatever they are. And uh, so I must confess that when I was in the hospital, um, it's about a year and a half ago now for my heart surgery, what do you do in the middle of the night when you can't sleep in the hospital? <laughs> well, you find out that there is stuff going all night long, and there, there's, there's these things called infomercials, right? <laughs> well, they do help you to go to sleep. But again, it's those gimmicks that 
that could solve all of my life's problems. And they're so cheap and they're so amazing and they're so... And um, I guess that's why they're in the middle of the night. Because it's only people that can't sleep that would actually fall for them? I don't know. I think it's one of the reasons why dictators are so attractive. People that no one in their right mind should follow should be attracted to or lured by their words of promise and hope. And, um, but because of this longing for someone to deliver us. I personally think it's what causes the interest in aliens also. Um, somebody, I was talking to somebody uh, about the old... Um, some of the old alien movies like E.T. and so forth. Uh, one, um, a movie that I, I never watched and, and somebody's saying, why do people like to watch movies like that? And, and I think it's partially for the same reason. I think it's the hope that because the next president isn't going to figure out and Bill Gates isn't going to fork out the money to do it, that our answer, maybe it'll come from outer space. Maybe somebody else will bring the answer and the hope and the deliverance we need. And honestly, I think that's why there's such a longing to, to find life somewhere else and uh, to find hope in, in extraterrestrial beings. There's such a constant longing for a deliverer. And it goes all the way back, I believe, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after God had created humanity and created everything and in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 everything fell apart in Genesis chapter 3 if you remember everything fell apart everything that was good the relationship between humanity and God and, and man and woman and, and man and animals and, and, and man and angels everything fell apart everything went wrong but in our hopelessness at that point in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes a promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent who, who tricked them and deceived them into believing his lie and caused this massive disruption in this beautiful creation that God made. The promise of a deliverer. And from that point on, I think there was this longing um, in Genesis chapter 4, Eve, as was just mentioned, she thought it was Cain. I mean, that he's the one. He's the one that's going to that, that's been promised, and he's the one that's going to be our deliverer. But it didn't happen. Uh, it, it wasn't very long before the hoped-for deliverer murdered his brother. And Adam and Eve found out very quickly that, that that wasn't where deliverance was going to come from. But who would it be and, and what would he look like? I'd like to ask you this morning, if, if you were to plan what deliverance for our, our world would look like, I mean, just kind of transport way back then, what would your plan look like? 
If you were given the responsibility for saving our world, and I wouldn't want that responsibility, <laughs> what would your plan look like? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, what God's plan looked like. And, and this is what I want us to do this morning because I know... It's really hard because it's hard to transport ourselves back to Genesis chapter 3 and the hopelessness of the world and the desperate straits our world was in and then that hope of a deliverer that would come and who he would be and what he would look like. And like I said, Adam and Eve found out really quickly that they had no clue what he was going to look like and who he would be and what he would do. Hard to transport ourselves back but because now we... if. If you've read this book, the Bible, and you've come to understand God's plan, it's easy at this point to say, oh yeah, that's, that's old hat. Yeah, I, I, I know that, Dave. Why don't you tell us something new? But what I want us to understand this morning, what I want us, I hope this morning to get, is to, in, a, in a little bit of a, a fresh way to understand how outlandish God's plan was. What we take for granted, how outrageous God's plan was to redeem a world that had become so broken so fast. Listen to some verses. I just want to read some verses for you as you, as you listen. This comes from Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In Daniel 4.35 it says, This God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? That's our God. Isaiah 46.9 and 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is God. And the Bible makes really clear that God is God, there is no other, that the plans He makes are according to His good pleasure and no one can change them, that what He plans will happen. He's all wise, he's all powerful, and he's able to do whatever he pleases. So the question is, so what has pleased him to do? What is his pleasure? What is the plan that gave him pleasure to bring about the redemption of humanity? Well, listen to some more verses. I want, I want you to get a, just again a reminder of this humanity that God is planning to redeem. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. 
Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Uprightness cannot enter. That's in Isaiah 59 and God's view of our world. Romans 3, God goes on, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our world. According to our God's viewpoint, rebellious, Sinful, separated from God, absolutely without hope and without God. So what would we expect that such a God, all-wise, all-powerful, can do whatever he wants, would do with such a people as us? Rebellious, sinful, separated from him? Well, our first inclination, I think, rightfully would be, well, that such a God wouldn't want anything to do with us, would he? <laughs> I mean, that would be the logical thinking. Such a God would be done with such a people, and he'd say, forget you people. And that, that's kind of how we are with people that, that turn on us, isn't it? That wrong us, that hurt us, that sin against us. So often our response is, I'm done with them. I'm not going to have anything to do with them anymore. And that's... Honestly, what would make sense from a God like we've heard read about this morning? But let's just imagine that such a God, all-wise, all-powerful, able to do whatever he pleases, is interested in redeeming such a people as us. Rebellious, sinful, separated from him. What would his plan be? What would his plan be? Well, that brings us to the scripture that I read this morning where I think we get a glimpse of what his amazing and outrageous plan would be. And to get a glimpse of how amazing it is and outrageous it is, turn back to, to Matthew, if you're there, 22, and look at verse 46. Verse 46. Matthew twenty-two forty-six. 46. After Jesus has asked a few questions, notice the response of the people. It says, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. It's like they were stumped. They were stumped. This is, this is one of those game shows that is at his worst. You know, the contestants are all there. The question is, and they're stumped. What does this mean? It means that in light of what he has just asked, in light of what he's just said, nobody can wrap their minds around what he's asking. His words aren't even in their scope of thinking. It's like um, Vicini, is that his name, in Princess Bride? And his favorite word, what is it? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. It's not even possible to conceive what he's saying. 
So what is he saying? It's obviously shocking because no one will even ask him another question from then on. Notice what he's saying in verse 41 through 45. He's asking three questions. He says, first in 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He follows it up by saying, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And then in verse 45, he says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? We're going to come back to that in a second. But, but in order to get these, these questions, I want us to flip back to verse 20. I mean, chapter 20, okay? And just get the context a little bit. Notice in chapter 20, look at 29. This is the context leading up. Jesus is leading, leaving Jericho with his disciples and there's a crowd following him and there's two blind men that are crying out to him for mercy. And what do they cry out? Chapter 20, verse 31. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. We go into chapter 21 and Jesus is in triumph. He's entering into Jerusalem has been prophesied in, in the Psalms and in Zechariah. And as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And it's, it's offensive and it's disgusting. Look at chapter 21 and verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and they said to him, don't you hear what these children are saying? They're calling you the son of David. And notice Jesus' response. He said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. They're so offended by it that in chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, notice what they do. They challenge his authority. They said, who gives you the right to accept the praise and the adoration that you're accepting. And how does he respond to them? He doesn't answer them. But it leads him to telling three parables in chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, the parable of two sons. And this parable is directly aimed at the Pharisees and their refusal to accept the message that John proclaimed when he proclaimed that Jesus was the one who was to come. He tells the parable in, in, uh, called the parable of the landowner in 2133 and following, where right in their faces, as he speaks to the religious leaders, he exposes their hypocrisy. And that they're not even looking forward to the Messiah. In fact, they are out to eliminate him so that they can be the ones that are in charge. Notice at the end of chapter 21, uh, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. The ones that had been put in charge of the land, God's people, 
and rejecting the Messiah, God will reject them. Jesus goes on in chapter 22 and he tells the story, the parable of the marriage feast, of the king who is going to put on an amazing feast, a marriage feast for his son. And so he points to himself and to those who will be invited to his marriage feast. Well, what it leads to is some more vicious questioning as we in chapter 22, verses 15 to 40, and we get three more series of questions that the religious leaders ask him to try and trap him, to trip him up in order to eliminate him so that they can be in charge of the inheritance. I want you to notice, look at chapter 22, verse 15. The first thing, question is, and in each, in each series of questions, Jesus exposes them and teaches them something. The first one in verses 15 to 22, notice they try to trip him up and they say, you know, they show him a coin and it has the image of Caesar on it. And they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You could ask the question, should we pay taxes in the United States of America? It can be the same question here. Jesus responds by saying, well, whose image is on that coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, in an amazing way, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning the money you use has his image on it, well, then you owe him something. But then give to God what bears God's image. It was profound. What bears God's image? Us. Us. And so in their attempt to trip him up, he exposes to them and reminds them of who they are, created in the image of God. In chapter 22, verses 23 through 33, some Sadducees come up to him and they try to trip him up and they don't even believe in the resurrection and they ask him a question about what will happen when the resurrection happens. They're, they're just... They're insincere, just trying to trip him up. And in his amazing way as he did in verses 15 to 22 to reveal to them who they are and what their responsibility is before God. He reveals to them afresh who God is. As he says, notice in chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus says, you're mistaken. It's pretty, pretty point blank. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For, the, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And this is powerful, verse 32. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he, he shows them this scripture that doesn't say, notice, it didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was, but he says, I am. He's the God of the living. He's alive still. And then the final question verses in verses 34 to 40. What is the greatest commandment? And he agrees that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor is yourself. And then when they're done, he asks them a question. And this is what brings us to our context. The whole thing has been surrounded about 
who he is, who this son of David is, who, who the Messiah will be, and, and, and what he'll look like. And so he asks them a question to expose to them their wrong thinking and to reveal to them God's plan. Look at verse 41 again. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, what do you think about the Christ or the Messiah whose son is he? And this was just the teaser to kind of the hook to draw them in. Because he already knew that they knew the answer to that because, because that's what offended them way back at the beginning. Remember? When the blind men were crying out, Lord, son of David, and when the children were crying out, son of David, that's what offended them because he said, out of the mouth of babes, you prepare, prepared praise for yourself. And so he was accepting the, the praise that that he like prepared these children to cry out, son of David. And so they immediately answer him, the son of David, the Messiah is the descendant of David. And they all knew that. And that's what they were looking forward to, that, that the, the Messiah, the deliverer, would be from the house of David, from the line of David. But then he kind of begins to reel it in a little more. Notice he says to them, then how does David... In the spirit, call him Lord. And in, verses, in verse 44, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And this is what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies or put your enemies beneath your feet. It's a messianic psalm. In fact, it's an amazing psalm because in the same psalm, Psalm 110, we see two glimpses of who the Messiah will be. The first is here that he's going to be the king. In fact, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Because notice what it says, the Lord Yahweh says to my, this is David speaking, Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand. To the place of sole privilege and authority at the right hand of God Almighty. This king, this descendant of David, this deliverer, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. I'm just going to quote here what somebody says, just as Yahweh sits enthroned in the heavens and laughs at the rebels below. That's from Psalm 2. So shall he the king being described in Psalm 110 that Jesus is quoting here. So shall he who is exalted to his right hand share this blessed calm with him until he subdues all his enemies before him and makes him the unlimited, universally acknowledged ruler of the universe. That, that's this deliverer, this... Son of David being described here in Psalm 110. And Jesus said, so how does David in the spirit, meaning speaking the words that God wants him to speak, call his descendant his Lord? And then Jesus sums it up in verse 45. If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? 
and it's profound and it's outlandish and it's outrageous and that's why no one was able to answer him because it's beyond what they could comprehend. Even though all these scriptures and many more like them were in the Old Testament, their whole concept of the deliverer that would come, the Messiah that would come, would be, that he would be this human deliverer. And so when Jesus fed the 5,000, they tried to force him to be king because they said, this is the man, this is the deliverer, this is the guy that's going to deliver us. This is the Bill Gates, this is the, this is the Obama, this is the Gingrich, this is the, you know, this is the man. And what were they missing? And what was so incredible and what was so outrageous is because the idea that they had fell so far short of God's plan that David's son would be David's Lord. That the son of David, the Messiah, is David's master. How can that be? That David's human descendant is... Incredible, David's God. How can it be? I'm going to just show you two verses here really quickly. Look at John chapter 1, verse 30. John chapter 1, verse 30. Starting at verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 30, notice what it says. It says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Look at John chapter 8. One more verse here. John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews, you know, just like in Matthew 22, they're, they're, they don't get it. They said, you're not, you're not 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. The one who came after Abraham was before Abraham. The one who was born after John the Baptist existed before John the Baptist. And they got it. Verse 59, notice... Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. God's outrageous plan. You know, the typical way that if, if we were making a plan, going back to what our plan might be, the typical way that important people have their dirty work done for them, right? And, you know, like dealing with hard to get along with people. Or rebels, or, or 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 just people that you don't like, is to do it through others, right? You have your minions do it. You have your servants do it. You have you know you have 
people that can be dispensable do it. And surely that's what God would have done. And that's, that's what some false religions teach. That the answer was in a prophet. Just a mere prophet who came and, and proclaimed some, some wise words from God. Or, or that some lesser God, you know, some, some extension of God. Because surely, it, you know, important people don't do the dirty work. Consider God's outrageous plan that God himself became a human being. God who existed from all eternity existed before this moment when he's talking to these people and asking them these questions in Matthew 22 that that God, his plan was that in himself he would bring redemption to humanity. It's outrageous. And it's outrageous because if we really understand what Jesus is saying in, in Matthew 22, it's because we understand what he's saying in Matthew 20. And I want you to flip back there because it gives us the full picture between Matthew 22 and Matthew 20. In Matthew 22, he says that David's son will be David's Lord. And what will David's son, who's David Lord, do? Look at Matthew 20, verse 17. As he's about ready to go up to Jerusalem, he takes the 12 disciples aside by himself, and on the way he says to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, who's described in the book of Daniel, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And on the third day he will be raised up. That is an outrageous plan. That the God of the universe, who is all-wise and all-powerful and can do according to his pleasure, that his pleasure, that his plan would be to sacrifice himself on a cross for a rebellious people. That is outrageous. That is outlandish. But that was his plan all along. I just want to read you one more verse in Isaiah 53 to, for you to see how far this plan goes back. This wasn't some last minute thing that God thought of. But listen, Isaiah 53.10. The Lord was pleased. Meaning it was his pleasure. It was Yahweh's pleasure, the God of the universe's pleasure to crush to crush his Messiah, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his descendants, his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. That the God of the universe, becoming a human being, would go to the cross 
to redeem us from our sin. Can we wrap our minds around that? Why is that even possible? How is it even possible? We're going to continue to talk about it. That's why Christmas is by far my favorite time of the year. I love it. Because it's like introducing us every year all over again to the outrageous plan, the pleasure of God, that the God of the universe would humble himself, become a baby, a human baby, for the sole purpose of going to the cross to redeem rebellious mankind. That's what Christmas is about. That's God's outrageous plan that we celebrate at Christmas time. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just send somebody else to do it? Why didn't he just call one of the angels to come out of heaven and do it? Why didn't he just let a prophet do it? Why didn't he let some man do it? Why did he do it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. But just to give you a reminder, and this is to me what is so amazing and what's so incomprehensible and why none of us could have come up with this plan is because it had to be God. It had to be God. In Psalm 49, it says that no man's can by any means redeem his brother. The price of redemption is too high. A man cannot do it. The price is too high. The rebellion against the God of the universe is too great. It had to be God that did it. But the wages of sin is death. And God is a spirit and God can't die. So God in his incredible wisdom and in his amazing love, the God that had to do it, the, the God that only could do it, became a man to die. So the wages of sin, which is death, could be paid. Our redemption could be purchased. And so the God-man, completely God, completely man, in God's incredible plan is what gives us hope. Amazing love. Song goes, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Man, we, we just lose sight of how amazing that is, don't we? You, my God, would die for me. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. Till on that cross as glory died, capital G, as Jesus died, glory died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that's God's incredible, outlandish, outrageous plan, our hope. David's son, the son of God. David's descendant, David's God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that just all over again you'd open our, our hearts to see, to be, to be stunned afresh at this Christmas time that the baby that we celebrate, the birth that we celebrate is so outlandish, so outrageous that we've got to fall on our faces and worship you and serve you with all of our being that you are God 
would humble yourself, come to this earth, and die for us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.